Well, good morning, church. Hey, you made it. You made it. You risked your life and came out to worship Jesus. Good to see you. And those who are live streaming, we're glad that you're with us as well. You'll have to be careful, too. Watch out for computer viruses. Don't get too close to the screen right there. If you're a guest this morning, we're in a sermon series entitled Obey Everything, taken from the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So we're, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at the commands of Jesus to learn them, reinforce them, to obey them. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Starts off with the Beatitudes, the eight statements about the abundant life. Beatitude from the Latin root, which means what? That's right, happy. It means happy. Happy, abundant, joyful life. This is the kind of life we want. This is the life Jesus is teaching us to have. So we've already talked about being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Today's beatitude is oxymoronic. And you know what an oxymoron is. It's like a two-word contradiction. For instance, bittersweet. It's an oxymoron. So a little test for you this morning. Make sure we're engaged today. I'm going to put some oxymorons up here on the screen. I'll give you the first word, <clears throat> first letter of the second word, and you have to guess what it is, okay? So I've got five or six of these. Jumbo shrimp, jumbo shrimp. That's an oxymoron. You see that? All right, deafening, deafening silence, deafening silence. Act naturally. If you've seen these before, though, you can't say anything, all right? Act naturally in the first service. Passive aggressive passive aggressive random order random order and i think we have one more government intelligence that's an oxymoron government intelligence <clears throat> okay very good you guys did great i'll give you an a minus on that so the beatitude today matthew chapter 5 verse 4 blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted if that was boiled down into a two-word oxymoron it would be happy sad happy sad blessed are those who mourn happy joyful are those who mourn uh, well what's jesus talking about here what's he getting at well the blessing comes from the comfort they will be comforted so let's talk about that this morning i basically have three things to say the ways we're comforted when we mourn number one we're comforted when we see the world as it really is we see the world as it really is solomon says proverbs 25 20 Singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like pouring vinegar in a wound. So when Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and says, Blessed are those who mourn, he's not denying that we mourn. He's not denying grief or pain, heartbreak, suffering in any way. The Bible's very upfront in acknowledging that life is hard. In Job, we read Job 14:1, life is short and full of trouble. Well, that's true. Somebody lives in their 90s. Still, life is relatively short and lots of trouble. Some people may be mourning all kinds of things. But for instance, could be mourning their lost health. I talk to so many people these days who have lived with chronic pain. And they may have medicine. There may be pain management of different kinds. But there is pain in their lives that just is not going to go away this side of heaven. Maybe they long for the days, you know, when they just were pain-free. Uh, there are people who may be mourning an estranged relationship in their family, right? maybe a grown child with whom they've become estranged. They don't have that anymore. Maybe a divorce. You know, somebody who's been through a divorce, they never intended to get divorced. And they said, I do. That's not what they anticipated, but it happened. Another heart is broken. 
And by the way, you don't have to have gone through an official wedding ceremony to experience a heartbreak from a broken relationship, right? So a lot of people experience that. And then there's the classic uh, mourning associated with death. If you've lost a child, lost a spouse or a sister, just someone close to you, as most of us have, you know, mourning. There is grief. There is mourning and pain. I was looking back. I've been here for 14 years. Looking back, I've done, over the funerals, I've done about 25 funerals and attended many more uh, since I've been here. Most of those funerals have been for and with members of our church family, right, our spiritual family. At least one of the ones that I attended was for a member of my own immediate family. And I was thinking, we have walked through the valley of the shadow of death together over the last few years. And many of you, with your fellow church members, we've experienced that mourning and grief. It does no help. There's no comfort in denying there is true heartbreak and pain and suffering and difficulty. Elizabeth Elliot is an author. She's written several books, but in her book, Through Gates of Splendor, she writes about her first husband. Jim Elliot was one of five missionaries to the Alca Indians in Ecuador back in the 50s. So they, very remote area, Nate Saint piloted the plane. They landed on a riverbank and for about two or three days, they engaged uh, the, the natives there, the Alcas, and they were writing in their journals and taking a few pictures. On that fourth day, all five of them were speared to death, these five missionaries. That was her first husband. Then she remarried, and her second husband got cancer and died of cancer. And she writes of that time period, she writes, uh, on one of those terrible days during my husband's cancer, when he could bear, hardly bear the pain or the thought of yet another treatment, and I could hardly bear to bear it with him. We remarked on how wonderful it would be to have just a single ordinary day. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever thought, man, it'd be a great to have a time machine where I could go back in time to where my days were ordinary. I've just loved to have an ordinary pain-free day, ordinary grief-free day, mourning-free day. Well, if you're having an ordinary day, by the way, thank God for it. Don't wait for an extraordinary day. Praise God for an ordinary day. Robert Rogers' entire family drowned in a 2003 Kansas flash flood. In a moment, he lost his beloved wife, all four of his children. This Christ-centered family went to church. They tithed. They read the Bible. They prayed together. After the disaster, Robert entered a dark world of Job-like suffering. He said this, quote, we did everything right. We attended church. We gave our money to missions, and then God did this to us. I don't get it, end quote. That's in Randy Alcorn's book on suffering. Randy Alcorn writes this. At times like these, our faith gets exposed as an insurance policy in which we pay our premiums to protect us from harm. We have to be careful. I'm, I don't think that's necessarily true of any of us in here, but we have to be careful that we don't have misguided expectations. And sometimes people do, feeling like if we do obey everything Jesus commanded, if we are faithful to the Lord, then that means we're going to be protected from all harm and pain. That's not true. But the thing is, God never said that that was true. Right after the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, great fear gripped the world as they entered the atomic bomb age. When C.S. Lewis, uh, the author C.S. Lewis, was asked, how are we to live in an atomic age? He responded, <clears throat> quote, 
Why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you were already living in an age of cancer, syphilis, paralysis, air raids, railway accidents, and car accidents. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint. Oh, sorry about that. He was not a teetotaler. And a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. You know, most of the, uh, the in my, my research, uh, the commentaries that I read on the Beatitudes take the approach that I'm actually taking, which is that these are instructions for us how to live the abundant life, so you need to be poor in spirit and a peacemaker. There's one that doesn't. Dallas Willard, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, he, he takes a different approach. He suggests that Jesus is not saying here you need to mourn. The people he was talking to were already mourning. There was, a, there was an understanding in Jesus' day that if you were in harmony with God's will, you would be experiencing material blessings. You would be enjoying health and good relationships. If that was not true of you, you were probably outside of God's will and outside of the stream of God's kingdom. And so Dallas Willard suggests that Jesus is coming and he's contradicting that teaching of his day. And he was talking to the people who were not only poor in spirit, but downright poor in his day. And he was talking to the people who were mourning and grief-stricken, powerless and broken, the down-and-outers, and those who felt like they had absolutely nothing left to give or to contribute. And he was saying to you, the kingdom of heaven is for you. The kingdom of God is for you. You too can have an abundant life and a joyful life and a blessed and happy life through a relationship with me, through your relationship with Jesus. It's for you, and you are not alone. So, where's the comfort? We're saying, first of all, the comfort is in just seeing the world as it really is. Uh, secondly, in seeing ourselves as we really are. Seeing ourselves. Romans 5.12, Paul writes, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, we know originally we're created in God's image. The purpose was that we might have loving fellowship with God for eternity. But sin entered the picture, that image was marred, our world was marred, our life experience, suffering comes about as a result of sin, death entered the world. God said it would. He said if you sin, there's going to be death, and with a world full of death, there's a world of suffering, a world full of suffering. And we want to make that connection between suffering and sin. So this, this suffering and sin, it's not just out there, it's in here. Back in the Old Testament, King David had a son, Absalom, who rebelled against him. And in his rebellion, the king, the royal family, and really most of the inhabitants of the capital city were forced out of Jerusalem. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered. He was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went. Now, so the weeping, the covering of the head, being barefoot, these are all demonstrations of repentance for sin. So, now, the inhabitants of the city who are having to flee Jerusalem, was, was their suffering the result of their own personal sin? No. But they were still repenting. 
They still had their heads covered. They were still weeping. They were just repenting of sin in general. There was sin out there that had caused their suffering, but there was sin inside themselves. They were simply hating on sin in general. We suffer, but we want to make the connection and transition our hatred of suffering into a hatred for sin itself. <clears throat> Three elderly sisters were living in a house together, 96, 94, 92. The 96-year-old was upstairs. She drew herself a bath. She put one foot into the bathtub, and then she paused. And she called out to her other two sisters, was I getting into the bathtub or was I getting out of the bathtub? I can't remember. The 94-year-old was downstairs, and she heard her sister upstairs. She said, hold on, I'll come up, and we'll see. And so she started up the stairs. She paused halfway up the stairs, and she called out, was I going up the stairs or was I coming down the stairs? I can't remember. The 92-year-old sister was down at the kitchen table drinking a cup of tea. And she said, Lord, I hope I never get as forgetful as my two older sisters, knock on wood. And she said, hang on, I'll come up there and help you too as soon as I see who's at the front door. We all have pretty good forgetters, and we need reminders. And we want to remind ourselves of this connection between sin and suffering. So I do my devotions in the one-year Bible. I know a lot of you do as well. And so when I was writing this message, on Monday and Tuesday, I was in Mark chapter 14 and Mark chapter 15. So that's the account of Jesus' arrest, and he's taken before the Sanhedrin, the religious Supreme Court of that day, convicted. He's convicted of blasphemy. And then, I mean, it's shameful, but the religious leaders at that point begin to abuse him. They slapped him. Right? They blindfold him, beat him with their fists, prophesied to him. They mocked him, prophesied to us, tell us who hit you. In the meantime, Peter is in the garden outside when all this is going on, and he's approached by the servant girl. Weren't you one of his disciples? And so he denies Jesus out there. They hand Jesus over to the soldiers who scourge him with the cat of nine tails, and then they crucify him. Part of what I try to do in my devotions, of course, I pray through the daily psalm in the one-year Bible, uh, but also, if possible, try to pray through the gospel narrative that we're reading. And on Monday and Tuesday, I just prayed. I said to Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for slapping me. I'm sorry for hitting you. I'm sorry for denying you. I'm sorry for scourging you. I'm sorry for mocking you. I'm sorry for crucifying you. It's not just out there. It's in here. We're not only well represented by Adam in the garden when he rebelled against his father and sin. We're, we're represented. We're also well represented by the mom that day. If there is a command, if, if these are commands to get to the blessed life, then the command to mourn is a command to mourn over sin in general and to mourn over our own sin in particular. That's the only way we're going to get to the blessedness. It's through mourning and repentance of sin. Hating sin more than we hate our suffering. Hating the sin. And then God can come along with His grace and His mercy and not punish us for our sin the way we deserve, but instead... Treat us the exact opposite of what we deserve. And that's called the grace. And that's where the comfort is. Seeing the world like it really is. Seeing ourselves 
as we really are. And uh, then a third way is seeing God as He really is. Seeing God as He really is. Genesis 6, 6. So the Lord was sorry He had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke His heart. Now we're looking for comfort, and our God is the God of all comfort. Remember, God is a God who, who feels. He's a person, and He feels. He experiences suffering. He experienced, He's a person who can experience a broken heart. When we sin, it breaks His heart. Uh, the chronicle of the nation of Israel you know, is a chronicle of, of breaking God's heart and hurting God in Isaiah 63, 9. Isaiah record, records, speaking of Israel and all their suffering, the Lord also suffered. The Lord also suffered. The Bible compares the sin of the nation of Israel against God to the unfaithfulness of a spouse. In Jeremiah 3, 8, God says, I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery. God knows the pain of divorce. Theologian Jack Cottrell writes, God's pain is the result of the fact that God is both love and wrath. And from the fact that both are directed toward the same object. Without wrath, there would be no pain. God suffers pain only when He tries to love us, the objects of His wrath. His love comes to us with the forgiveness of sin though we deserve His wrath. This is the source of the pain of God. The pain is, the pain of God is the forgiveness of sin. Now maybe you got a pet dog. You like to pet that dog. Cuddle with it. Love that dog and cuddle that dog. Or maybe you have a, a pet cat. You like to hug and love on that cat. That's all sweetness and light. What if you had a pet porcupine? It might be hard to, hu to hug and cuddle with the pet porcupine. But we're kind of like a porcupine for God. He loves us and wants to love on us, but when he does, it hurts him. He pays a price to do that. So we ask these questions, why did God allow this to happen to me? I mean, God could have, he could have prevented it. Why didn't he prevent this from happening in my life, whatever this suffering happens to be? We don't get all those answers, do we? We don't know all the answers why. He prevents some things, but not all things. But here's what the answer cannot be. It cannot be that God doesn't care. It cannot be that God doesn't love us. He loves us so much, he, he doesn't stand back separate from our pain. He enters into our pain. He feels our pain. He is a God who suffers with us. The Bible says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Bible also says that He heals the brokenhearted. So God feels pain, but He also heals God will heal us. Now, it's not to say we're going to be the same before the tragedy happened, before the drama, the trauma. We're not going to be the same. We'll be changed, but that doesn't mean we can't be healed. That heartbreak will leave a scar. There's going to be a scar. You know, a scar is a testimony to pain and healing. Jesus showed his scars to Thomas, who was, who was doubting him. We have scars. I don't know exactly how all this happens, but I believe that it does happen. As the Bible says, through God's love, He enters in and He brings about healing. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, For we know how dearly God loves us because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. I know two things about you without even knowing all of you. Number one, I know that you are broken because that is the human condition. But number two, I know that you are loved because God is love and God loves you and me right now exactly as we are. 
I'm not saying he's going to leave us the way we are, but it, without making any changes, he loves you. He loves the broken you. He loves the addicted you. He loves the sinful you. He loves the hurting you, the lonely you. He loves the faithful you and the unfaithful you. We make, we'll make changes and, and we'll get better and God will work with us and change us, but he won't love us any more tomorrow than he loves us right now. He loves us. Crazy love for us. We are broken. We are loved by God. Let me finish with one more story. The depression of the 1930s all but devastated Mary Cushman's family. Her husband's paycheck shrank to $18 a week. Since he was ill, there were many weeks he didn't even earn that much. Mary took in laundry and ironing. She dressed her five kids with Salvation Army clothing. At one point, the local grocer, to whom they owed $50, accused her 11-year-old son of stealing, and that was all that Mary could take. She said, I couldn't see any hope. I took my little five-year-old girl into the bedroom and plugged up the windows and cracks with paper and rags. I turned on the gas heater and did not light it. As I lay down on the bed with my daughter beside me, she said, Mommy, this is funny. We just got up a little while ago. But I said, never mind. We're going to take a little nap. And then I closed my eyes, listening to the gas escape from the heater. She says, suddenly I heard music. I had forgotten to turn off the radio in the kitchen. I heard someone singing an old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. As I listened to the hymn, she says, I realized I made a terrible and tragic mistake. I tried to fight all my terrible battles alone. I jumped up, turned off the gas, opened the door, raised the windows. She went on to explain how she spent the rest of the day giving thanks to God for blessings she had forgotten, including five healthy children. She promised she would never be ungrateful. Her family eventually lost their home, but they never lost their hope. They weathered the depression. The five children grew up, married, had children of their own. And Mary now writes, as I look back on that terrible day, when I turned on the gas, I thank God over and over that I woke up in time. What joys I would have missed, how many wonderful years I would have forfeited forever. Whenever I hear now of someone who wants to end their life, I feel like crying out, don't do it. The blackest moments we live through can only last a little time. And then comes the future. You'll be tempted to give up. Please don't. Open your Bible. Meditate on Scripture. Sing hymns. Talk to someone about your hurt. Seek help. Place yourself in a position to be found by hope. Weeping comes, but so does joy. Darkness comes, but so does the morning. Sadness comes, but so does hope. Sorrow may have the night, but it cannot have your life. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Our Father in heaven, we're realists in here. We know that life is hard. Life is difficult. It's a struggle. There's much sadness, brokenness, heartache. There's so much pain. There's so much we don't understand. But right in the midst of all that, without changing a single thing in our circumstances, we know that we can be blessed. We know that we can be happy and that we can have joy through our relationship with Jesus Christ and our relationship with you. We thank you for the blessed life. In Jesus' name, amen.